Welcome to the PT Project Podcast. I'm your host, Paul. And I'm your host, James. We know that biomechanics can seem like a complicated and confusing field, but it really doesn't have to be. Join us every Thursday as we explore various topics related to biomechanics, human movement, and what it means to be a great PT in general. In other words, let us help you make sense of this wonderful world so that you can become the best trainer you possibly can be. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the PT Project Podcast. We are here today to waffle a little bit about what we call the four C's step exercise process of exercise selection. We need to trim the name down, you can tell. We just call this the four C's, right? But the idea that we want to talk to you about is when we're thinking about exercises, either for ourselves or for our clients, what thought process do we go through to decide whether that's the right exercise? And then if it is, how do we go about sequencing, okay, which bit should I attend to first? Is it about trying to get a contraction for them? Am I figuring out some control? Do I manipulate the profile? What's the path of motion? All of that stuff, which all matters. But if you're anything like us, we think it's useful to have almost like a step-by-step walkthrough to go, right, let's not worry about those things before we've got these other rocks in place. So the four C's is something we speak about in our mentorship as an effort to try and actually systemize this for you as coaches so that you can go, right, let's go get step one in place before we move to step two, to step three, to step four, etc. So Jimbo, the four C's, do you want to kick us off with step one? For, step one is going to be client. So we've got to make sure that it's appropriate for the client and for the goal. Actually, just before I go, I'm going to go back a point a little bit before we talk through, the, through these things. Long term, we don't potentially want a protocol. We don't necessarily want a strategic plan in place because we're going to have the awareness. We're going to have the experience. We're going to have that extra knowledge to decide, okay, I'm going to go in at step three or I'm going to adjust there. But in the early days, it's so helpful to have a set structure that we're going to work through. Okay, I'm going to start here, tick the boxes here, and then move on to step two, step three, and then build on there as you go through maybe month one, month two, month three, or whatever it is within the coaching process. So the goal of long term is not to have that. But in the early days, when we're just left with all these things to think about and no real structure, we just get confused. I know I would do, and I'm sure you'd be the same, Paul, that having a set sort of structure stroke plan and guidance in place is so beneficial early on. Yeah. To build for 6, 12, 18 months, whatever that is. Oh, I can now I've implemented this for 6 months, 12 months, however long it may be. I can start to really come up with my own way of thinking for this individual client. Yeah. I mean, here's what it's like. It's like learning an instrument, right? When you first learn an instrument, you you don't want to be freestyling <laughs> and improvising and stuff because you, you don't know how to play the instrument. You don't know how to do anything yet. So the idea of improvising over something is just terrifying there's there's too when you have too many things to think about as a beginner it's sort of paralyzing more than anything else right too much freedom of stuff is like oh my god i have to consider all these things well where do i start but absolutely as you become more of an expert in these things we can get rid of some of the structure that we artificially sort of put in place because all of it matters and our ability to adjust and to see what the person in front of us actually has and how to play around and whether we think that's relevant to them and their goal and everything that you're going to hear us talk about. You, When I approach a client now, I don't really have this particularly in mind. It's in there somewhere, but it's less of a conscious, oh, I go through this, then this, then this, then this. But it's all in there already, and that allows me to improvise 
over the top of this because to begin with, I learned my chords, I learned my foundations, I learned my melodies, I learned what a first, a third, and a fifth within a thing is. And this is our attempt at taking something, I've never used this as an analogy before, but I'm going with it as my musical one, uh, of taking that same idea of when we're starting out, it's helpful to learn a song by some structure before you start improvising. So this is our attempt at giving that structure in there first off. So yeah, so that's a really, really good point, mate. Yeah, going back to you. <laughs> Step one, the first process, uh, was looking at, say, the first C, we could say was client, looking at appropriate for the client and their goal. Um, so that's the key thing is what's relevant to the client and even not necessarily appropriate for them even got to take maybe a step back from that and think okay what do they actually enjoy doing what do they want to do so rather than us taking our knowledge and thinking okay what's appropriate for them what's ideal for them no it's actually well what do they want to do and then how can we mold mold in what we feel is appropriate for them so within that one of the key things we're going to have to look at is the skill of the movement and the competency of the client. And that's hugely underestimated for anyone like ourselves, me, training for 25 plus years, stupid amount. <laughs> but anyone in the industry, you've been training for probably two, five years, absolute minimum, if not longer. And you'll underestimate the skill of performing a dumbbell press, performing a lunge, or whatever that may be, actually some of their movements, especially if you're a higher body weight relative to your lean mass, something like a lunge, it's extremely high skill component. The awareness of what's going on on a dumbbell press is extremely high. And I remember early days of PT, giving clients a dumbbell press, they'd reach a relatively high level of fatigue, and I'd come in and start to spot them under their elbow. <laughs> what happens with a dumbbell? Boom, comes crashing down. <laughs> they haven't yep. got that skill to push through and be aware of what's going on. And that dumbbell comes crashing down, almost smashes them in the face. Luckily, it never did. But <laughs> like, I didn't even have the, the skill and awareness as a coach of where to go in to spot that movement. But that's not as <laughs> irrelevant at the moment. But yeah, understanding where a client is at with their skill stroke competency in the early days is almost number one before we look at anything else. And, and that kind of or has two things within that competency side. Like we could think of, well, if you lack the skill from a gains perspective, let's say you're trying to grow a muscle for some um, client for whatever their reason is. Well, if you lack the skill to actually sufficiently challenge that muscle because it we can't stabilize the joint motion that well, um, then we're actually not going to be able to get the exercise to a point that it is as stimulating as it could be for muscle growth for that person. In which case, if we've given them a really complex, everyone, if you've been a coach for a little period of time, or even if you haven't, you just looked around in the gym, you'll have seen people will stick on the dumbbell press, doing the dumbbell press, and they're clearly learning it. And it's wobbly as all hell. And it's shaking all over the place. And, you know, they have to go through that period to get good enough at the movement for the movement to be effective at causing growth. Well, if we're starting out with a, a beginner client, or if you're working on a transformation type thing, and you've got a 12-week period with this client, well, if you've picked an exercise that is going to take them a month to get sufficiently good at before it starts doing anything, then you might be wasting a month with that client. And you could have been better off for the transformation client, if this is relevant for them, again, we're going to come back to appropriate, stick them on a machine or something that's just a bit more stable so that they can sort of have at it a little bit more and be less limited by the skill. There is still a skill component, but it's a lower skill component. So that's one of them. And then the other one is actually, I think, just more about um, 
confidence. Like when we give people things that they um, really, really struggle to connect with, get good at, uh, they, they tend to feel less empowered by that particular thing. And it's generally a good thing, whether you're an educator or a coach, to want to empower your client or student, to make them feel not that they, people generally like feeling challenged, provided they feel like they can get it. Like it's that sufficient, just on the cusp of, oh yeah, no, that, that's hard, but oh, yeah, yeah, I can kind of get it. it. And then you nudge that point further along each week or each session or each month or whatever. But if you give someone something that's so far beyond them, it just feels really disempowering. And you will find the odd client who steps up to that. It's like, fuck this, I'm going to get this thing, right? But you'll also find plenty who get really demotivated by the fact that you gave them something to do. And then you gave them a million cues because they couldn't master that thing pretty quickly. And then they felt uh, about it. We want to try and empower our clients where possible. And so picking exercises with a sufficient level of skill relative to their point is something that we can then develop their confidence with, whether that's for gains or just so that they keep coming back and all of that kind of shit within there. So absolutely, we've got that. If we then roll into maybe the next idea for appropriate for the client and the goal, we have ranges of motion. Now, you've heard us talk before that ranges of motion tend to be these arbitrarily set external things. The bar has to touch the chest, the ass has to touch the grass, the hamstring has to touch the calf, etc. But really, that is very arbitrary, right? That's like deciding everyone needs to be five foot. You're like, well, what do you do with the people who aren't? And so for those people who don't have a set range of motion that is externally defined, whether that's because of pain or whether they simply, you know, I have to God, I went through phases of everyone trying to squat as low as is humanly possible, ass to grass, and some people just couldn't. And I was like, well, we have to just keep trying. <laughs> and this included myself. And so what do we start to do within that? Well, for us, we kind of think, all right, what's an appropriate range of motion for my client? What do they actually have access to? What joint ranges have they actually got? Ideally, pain-free ranges kind of within there. And um, then relative to what the exercise is going to demand of them, what can they control through that? It might be that actually at that load, mm, let's not take them down into the bottom of that leg press. At a lighter load, they're fine. But actually, when we start getting heavier, their knees start to give them some jip. Well, we've got a couple of options. We could lighten the load and go through that fuller range, in which case I would probably suggest you do that. If they've got access to the range uh, and at a certain load, it becomes painful, we, that starts to suggest a tolerance issue. But if it, if it is one where actually even at the lighter load, they seem to stop, you know, not as low as Mike Israel tells you that it should go, stop there, right? You can explore and play and see if you can improve upon these things. But we're going to start, especially as beginners, by presuming that their body knows more things than you do because you can't MRI them and X-ray them in real time and see precisely what's going on within there. So it's quite, for my money, an arrogant perspective to think that I definitely know better than the person's body does and the feedback that their body is giving them. Uh, and so instead of just crowbarring them into these artificial ranges of motion, let's respect what they have and then explore that over time. And you'll need some skills in order to actually start doing that particular thing. Yeah, I think at this moment in time, it's something that's touched on that everything's got to be to a full range. So you don't so much hear the sound bite of the bar's got to touch the chest. Mm. You just hear, okay, you've got a bench press to a full range or you've got to do a dumbbell press to a full range. But as you said, the range for that movement that we might choose to go to might be different compared to another movement when we're working the pec, where we're working shoulder horizontal flexion. Like 
we could choose different ranges for one movement compared to the next one. So we could be on a pec deck or a fly type movement, and we could go through a different range, more lengthening through the pec than we could do to the dumbbell press. So it's not that we can just say everything's got to be through this full range. It's going to vary from person to person. It's going to vary from movement to movement. It's going to vary from position to position and even workout to workout as we progress. We could call that, here's how I would sum that up, actually. I'd call that just a client-defined range of motion rather than an arbitrarily one. Uh, So if we then move into the next one, Jimbo. The next one, you've just got to make sure it's relevant. (laughs) Exactly. And and that goes back to sometimes the client-focused and their, their goal. So yes, I understand it's appropriate for them, but what's their goal and what do they want to get out of it? And is it relevant for them? Rather than, okay, we enjoy doing this movement or we feel good doing this movement, but does how does our client feel? Is it relevant to what they want to get out of the session? Um, if there's certain things they just want to do because of, they enjoy it, they want to do a, a dumbbell, we're talking about dumbbell lateral raises this week in the mentorship. So uh, a lot of people initially, there's one guy especially, he was like, oh, I thought you guys would be frowned upon on dumbbell lateral raises because they're not necessarily ideal exercise if we're looking for the most efficient challenge. But as if the client enjoys that, and we feel it's, it's relevant, they want to work their shoulders, then we can put that in. Yeah. There's no reason why we can't have things like that. So it's understanding that, okay, it's relevant for where they're at, relevant for their goals and what they want to achieve from it. Yeah. And, you know, when you say it, it feels like a really obvious thing to state, but I promise you we've all made this mistake and we'll probably continue to keep making this mistake sometimes, hopefully less frequently as you go through. But, make we, you know, we build things on presumption too much. And so we hear a client say they have this particular goal. And in our head, that automatically jumps us to a bunch of thoughts that we have alongside that goal, which is normal. Like if you don't have any thoughts related to what someone needs to do to achieve a goal, you probably shouldn't be a coach, right? You're going to have these ideas in your mind. But some of them will be presumptive, overly presumptive, and you'll kind of make some mistakes. So whether it's like, oh, I, di- I didn't program any of the power lifts for anyone for a year once I first got into biomechanics because I was like, these are stupid, right? <laughs> and then you realize, oh, actually, no, they, re- they, they still work for a whole bunch of people. They're not problematic for everyone by any stretch of any imagination. And lots of people like them. And then that last one, I would say, is, is arguably the, the biggest one within that. So going, okay, we keep that in there. Or, God, I remember going through yeah, probably 10, 10 years ago when uh, I, was, I was doing the types of courses you do when you – you at least historically used to qualify as a PT. And so you go and do the core course that Premier was kind of running and the the stability course and this, that, and the other. And so you're standing on BOSU balls and everyone had to get their core kind of right. And we had to work these fascial lines. Uh, and, you know, this fat loss client in front of me <laughs> that I'm trying to make stand on a BOSU ball <laughs> or, or whatever, is I thought it was relevant because I'd just been learning about core and the importance of core. But actually, eh, I would probably argue that's not that relevant to that client and their particular goals yeah to bring that maybe down around to the relevant sort of thought process around exercise mechanics Mm. that we might have looked at a movement that's working spinal extension where we're trying to dial in and focus on that ability to extend the spine and strengthen that but we've got other movements in there that are getting some form of loading through the spine so because we've experimented with that isolation type movement through lumbar extension i think okay i need to put that in my client's program but is that relevant to where they're at and their goal when maybe we've included a a single arm cable row 
yes, there's some other stuff going on. Yes, that's not the direct challenge, but there is a challenge there. Or even if it's a bilateral cable row, there is a challenge there where we're resisting against the spine being flexed. So we're working the spinal extensors. And that is probably enough for what the client needs at a set point within their program. So understand, okay, the exercises that we want to include aren't always relevant for their client at that stage when we've got to think, okay, how are them other joint motions maybe being ticked or maybe being worked through other movements? And we could call that like almost a judgment call because it's a bit of a priority call when the client is time limited, right? And most of your clients are going to be time limited, right? Now you find some exceptions to that. We coach a bunch of coaches and those people tend to have more time to spend in the gym and it's a bigger priority to them. So, you know, you can have them in the gym five, six times a week and have those sessions be 90 minutes if you wanted to, which opens up a lot of uh, play time for, okay, I can put an exercise in specifically for that. But if you've got a client in three times a week for an hour, you're not going to hit everything that you could feasibly come up with that you think might need working. In which case, then it comes back to this judgment of priority. What's the client goal? Okay, I've found out they've got a couple of little issues. Well, are they big issues? Are they really stopping them getting towards the goal that they've at least in the short term come to you for? If they've come with a short-term goal, let's maybe, unless there's pain and shit, prioritize, get to that goal first. And then if they stay with you longer term, you can then start to explore some of the other stuff that you go, they've got this weird funky ankle thing or this hip thing kind of going on. If you've got a short-term goal, pick shit to just work around it for now. <laughs> and we can worry about improving that if they become a longer-term one. Because again, it comes back to appropriate for the goal that the client came with. Yeah. Something you touched on there in that sentence as well is is pain. Mm. The Next area we're going to touch on to make sure it's appropriate for the client and then goal is make sure it's painless. Yeah. So there may be a range that they're going through that just doesn't feel comfortable within that movement, within that exercise that maybe, okay, they're doing a hack squat and just you get to 90 degrees in knee flexion that just doesn't feel comfortable, doesn't feel nice. Okay, let's experiment and go on the leg extension. Can you get to that same 90 degrees knee flexion? How does that feel? Are there certain cues, certain things that you can give to make sure you can get to that point in range and it is painless? There might be a point, as you say, early on in the process, we're like, okay, well, actually, we're just going to stay away from that for a bit. And then in a month, two months, we're going to experiment where we've got a bit more time on our hands and stuff to play with and some of this other stuff is nailed and dialed in. We're going to go back and work on that. And you've got to make that decision yourself, whether you feel, okay, I'm going to focus on it now. Even if the client's focus is fat loss, I feel this still is a big enough rock, big enough priority to go in and spend time on. Or I'm going to step back from it focus on something that's going to get their physique related goal ticked off and then come back to experiment and explore later on and with that pain stuff you know you're trying almost to begin with you're just kind of making notes of stuff right going okay their knee hurts when they do this leg press does it hurt on a the leg press if we slow it down if we use a smaller range if i use a lighter load let's find out on all of those things if it does cool i make a note if it doesn't okay make a note what about on the leg extension Okay, it doesn't on the leg extension or it does on the leg. Now, if you've got someone who's got pain in a thing on basically every exercise, it's probably worth having a bit more of an explore. They'll probably need to see a physio um, unless you've been through a whole bunch of this stuff and are pretty confident with, with what you're doing. And even then, I would still say go and get them to go see someone anyway um, from a legal perspective. But once I've now lost my train of thought, that's good, isn't it? <laughs> so, oh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, so you've then got that kind of bit of going, all right, there's this list of exercises they're okay with and these lists of ones that they're not. Okay, if it just gives them a little bit of jip on the split squat at the very bottom, there's a really obvious solution to that in the short term. Don't, and it's only there. Well, don't go to there at that particular kind of point. 
And again, you can then, we're always going to come back to judgment. And this is almost what Jimbo meant at the start, when as you get more advanced, you stop having such a clear-cut process in your head because you're going to have these bits where you're like, hmm, I'm going to jump off and explore this a little bit more. And that's hard to get across um, just in a, in a podcast format. So if we move, hopefully the idea of we want them to be painless exercises <laughs> is, a, is a clear one. So, so our, our next C was control. So you want to have control of the path of motion. So the awareness of the path that we want to go through almost internally within our structure. And then if we're using a machine, the awareness of the path that the machine is going to go through. And even if we're using a freeway, a dumbbell or a cable or a barbell, the awareness of the path that the, the load from there dictates as well. Um, and Okay, go. Yeah, and it's kind of that idea, I think it's implicit in control, that each of those reps looks the same. Right, that's really what we mean by, con well, there's a couple of things we mean by control. Are those reps, you know, if I took a photo of you on rep one and another one on rep seven and another one on rep 14, do they look pretty damn close? You might see a tiny variance, that's pretty normal, but do they look, you'd have to look real hard with a microscope to start being like, oh, no, there's a tiny difference there. You're like, no, no, these look consistently repeatable, reproducible, this person owns this. And even within free weights, the heavier things get, you start getting this sort of artificial constraint whereby those dumbbells in a chest press, when they're heavy, will only move through a certain path. Because if you try and take them out of that path, well, find out, right? Try and take them out of that path, see what happens. <laughs> they're going to go down and it's going to go kind of badly. Whereas when you're starting and it's quite light, you can get away with those arms going in these various cone-shaped directions that you won't get away with as things uh, get heavier. So sometimes actually a little bit more load as someone goes through stuff creates an easier control path because they're like, oh, okay, it kind of has to stay there. But again, that would come back to an idea of appropriate for the client and going, well, maybe I should have picked something that gave them less optionality for that path um, when they were starting out. So this control thing, but it's also then, can they own each point in that rep? So they've got this range uh, and it looks nice and smooth and consistent, rep one to rep 15. But if I ask them to stop at any point during all of these movements, could they? And can they own each of those particular shapes, whether that's at the start of the rep or the stopping point of the rep or the midpoint in the rep? Are they really, we're going to call this ownership of the rep. Yeah. I think a key part within that as well is having an understanding, okay, yes, one rep one to rep 10 to rep 15 are all looking the same. But within that, does what's moving continue to move and does what should not be moving continue to stay stay still? Yep. That dumbbell press will take as, a, as an example. Do they end up by the time they get to rep 11, 12, 13, almost doing a glute bridge, lumbar extension <laughs> type thing <laughs> where they're trying to leverage and get their rib cage up higher and higher? Um, or does that literally stay completely locked and stable and then just getting the appropriate movement through the shoulder and elbow and whatever else maybe you intend in there? And then also as well, I think that once you get to a certain level, there may be what looks like a cheat going on mm. with a high-level bodybuilder. Not You'd more see it on something like a row movement where they're doing maybe a single-arm cable row well, they've got this bit of hip flexion going on. They've got this maybe bit of spinal flexion going on, but they're so aware of their internal ability to contract that is actually assisting with the movement, not taking away from it. Whereas when we see that in the early days, 
and almost try and maybe copy that as a beginner, we just think they're throwing the weight. Yeah. And then you use that hip movement to throw it without the same contraction there. So yes, we need an understanding of what's what's moving and what doesn't for ourselves and going back to what we said previously within sort of step one is what's appropriate at a moment in time. So what is appropriate at this moment in time might be different to six months or 12 months. So you might start to cheat teach a little bit of momentum through the hip or a little bit of contraction through the glutes to create a bit of hip extension as you're going through that single arm row later on but you're not necessarily going to teach that in the early days so again it just goes back to the initial thing okay what's moving what's not what's appropriate for the client where they're at now and that may change at some point you know that reminds me of the word choice really is that can the person choose to do it in different manners and that high level bodybuilder yeah probably can right if you when they're doing their warm-up sets they might look quite different than when they actually start getting into that uh full working set where they start using a little body english delivery to help them but they still find they can keep a great connection while doing it and it's clearly working and they're pain-free and all that stuff sweet have at it (laughs) but for that beginner they haven't got that's not a choice (laughs) that's just the only way they can do that at that particular time so, okay, we've got clients so far and all the things that go along with appropriateness for a client. And we've got control and control of the motion of the resistance and of their body mechanics. Let's kind of call it that. Those are, I would argue, probably 90% of it for, for most of your clientele. If you can just nail those two, you'll be a long way to doing the right things. But the fun stuff starts to come as far as we're concerned, right? Once you've got those in place, probably comes with the next step. So if we go into step three... But this is where I think once you start to understand exercise mechanics, you you get ahead of the game and you jump in. So the the next step we're going to say is contraction and connection. Hmm. Where contraction, especially in the early days, think, oh, well, everything's got to be about the squeeze. They've got to make sure this client can squeeze the lat on this lumbar-focused, iliac-focused row. Forget about that. (laughs) It's not an improvement. Until we get to a later stage. But once we've gone and locked in, okay, it's appropriate for the client and their goal. We, they understand the path of motion. They can stop at any point. Certain joints are locked. Then we're going to think, okay, what's the internal intent with that movement? Have they got that ability to squeeze throughout certain parts of the range? Have they maybe got the ability just to move that weight from A to B? That might be a focus, but then can they then dial in an internal focus? Can they then dial in an intent? Going back to the dumbbell press as an example, or if we had a machine press even as an example, whereas they get halfway through the movement, they've got the intent they're trying to drive their elbow in towards the midline. I like As they get in the bottom part of the movement. They've got the intent of trying to retract and maybe pull their, their scapula back. So there's certain things they're going to think about internally rather than just, okay, it's nice and controlled. It's three seconds down, pause, stop, two, three seconds up, pause, stop. They're controlling the movement. Okay, then we start to bring in this internal intent, another layer to the movement to get more out of it. You know, at that point for me, I, I get reminded of the word exploring, right, or explore. And you need the first two bits in place. You can't start to in- explore your internal sensations and what your body feedback is providing you until you've got repeatable repetitions, right? And until you're using exercises that aren't painful and that seem relevant to you and all that kind of shit. So you need those things in place. But once you've got that, well, then we can place intention in so many different ways. You know, even when we talk about the speed of repetition, right? Jimbo said three seconds down. But within that, there's al- almost infinite number of three seconds down. There's do I ex- let it drop for the first one of those seconds and then gradually decelerate? 
do I start a, like really slowly and then let it accelerate and then stop it immediately? Do I try and go smooth all the way through those whole things? None of those are necessarily right nor wrong. They're just differences and things that you can start to play with. Can I start to play with if I, I personally like often closing my eyes, I find it easier to focus internally on what I'm doing and what's moving with my eyes closed. Not everyone does that, but I do. And then, you know, if we're, we're talking about chesty kind of stuff, I tend to start visualizing my pec going from around my sternum and wrapping around down into my arm and try and almost lead with the idea of that pec pulling my arm forward and then up and round and round and shortening and pulling one point closer to the other. And I can't keep that focus. And then sort of the resistance just happens to be attached to my hands or my elbow or whatever the fuck it's attached to at that particular time and leading with that. And then as you develop that skill, I can actually do that pretty well at, at different speeds at this point. But when beginning and exploring and going, okay, what happens if I move my arm up a tiny bit? What happens if I allow a little bit of scapular elevation in my retraction? Oh, that's better. I found it. Okay. Like all of those little explores, you can only start doing, as we've said, once everything else is in place. But that I think is where so much of the really cool magic of making an exercise really effective for an individual starts to happen. And you need that speed and stuff in place and you need their ability to control it in place before you can start playing around with that. Yeah, and then touching on with the area of explorer, another area we can start to explore is do we want to start to play with the ability to restrain us down, the ability to sort of to lock and hold us in position? Yeah. Probably by now you've seen people use some form of restraint on a leg extension. So then you go and copy that and think, oh yeah, I've got to use that same restraint there myself was sometimes that's not required for a lot of people because the relative load they're using isn't required to drive into something um, but it's something again that can be explored if it's appropriate with the load they're using with the client with the situation with the environment with feeling confident and comfortable doing the movement something you touched on right at the start was does the client feel comfortable to do it don't go and strap them into something <laughs> on their first day <laughs> it's like um, so understand okay there's another point that we can potentially start to think about it's a tool there in the toolbox are we going to use that ability to restrain them in to hold part of their body in place to try and get more feel more sensation more contraction out of it. and then when they've got that restraint do they know how to use it there's one thing to be strapped down there's another thing to use that restraint as effectively as you can right now with the restraint there you'll be using it to some degree and it will likely improve things even if you don't quote unquote, know how to use it, right? But you can get more or less out of a restraint by knowing when to drive into it, how to drive into it, whether you want to do that the whole way kind of through. Um, so there's a there's a another skill component that we can add into those things. And, you know, even this, you know, we started this bit by going, we call it contraction and connection within this particular thing. But there is a skill of contraction and that feels like a bit of a, sometimes I think a dumb thing to say, but it's it's not if you've ever worked with people with neural deficits, <laughs> right? Because we go, well, I'm moving this load, so there must be a contraction occurring. And you're right, there is a contraction occurring <laughs> because otherwise those things wouldn't be moving. But is that contraction placed as well as you'd like it to be placed and on the things that you'd like it to place? And so we're not saying, the point isn't that there's zero contraction or 100% contraction. No, there's levels on a spectrum all the way through that. And the skill of contraction is about improving that and taking that thing up. And, you know, if you're working out quite well, maybe you're already at 80%, but we might be able to get that up a little bit more without just having to add extra load. And actually, that's a really beneficial skill to have in there. 
Yeah, and even going, we keep touching on the chest press as an example. If you've got the, the awareness of your ability to contract your chest, there's a certain level of fatigue that you'll get to and you'll lose that. And you'll yes, you might still be able to move the weight, but now you get a sensation of feeling through your anterior delt. Yeah. Um, and is that worth continuing in the rep, in the set? Maybe, maybe not. You, if your focus is to try and develop more through your chest than maybe anterior delt, there might be a point that you push to and then you're like, oh, okay, I'm done. Next week, I'll try and see if I can maybe get that extra rep, but not so much get the extra rep. Maybe if I can get the reps I'm getting with a bit more sensation, a bit more feel, then over time, that could lead to the development potentially of maybe not so much of a bias through your anterior delt and a bit more of a bias through, through your pec. And some of this stuff also is like, Long term, what happens if you do some of that shit? So, you know, to begin with, well, I could get more reps out if I lose the connection and just keep pushing through. And you're right, you can. But what happens if longer term, I keep that connection to my pec and I, uh, do you know what, seven reps in, mm, that's probably about done. I've probably got another three in me, but I'm going to lose that connection if I keep going. Okay, so I'm going to stop there because I'm ingraining a skill. And so the next time, maybe I can sustain that connection to the eighth rep with only two now left in the tank on that particular thing. And if I do it over a few months, maybe now I can push all the way to failure, quote unquote, with the connection almost there the whole time. And maybe that's a better place to push on from. We're not saying all the time. Clearly, people grow without any connection whatsoever. Just look at powerlifters. However, <laughs> it probably is our contention that for the long-term benefit of most people and their joint health and how they feel about exercises, I would bias more towards sensation mattering once I've got the other stuff in place. I think there's been a bit of a pushback recently on sensation not mattering that much. And I'm with it to the degree that I think appropriate for the client and the goal comes first, making sure that you've lined up the exercise and you've got an exercise with decent resistance for what the person has. All that absolutely kind of matters. And sensation can be overrated. But I think we're just being moronic if we think it's not relevant at all. Like your body doesn't generally give you completely unrelated sensations to what's going on. Note the word generally, right? <laughs> but most of the time when we're like, oh, I feel that really in that muscle, probably means the muscle's working for the most part. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think a key point you touched on there as well is the, the ability to push to fatigue or failure. That's the next area we're within contraction and connection that we need to be aware of. And again, I've made this mistake many times in my career that we start to try and show a client we can add value by pushing them harder, pushing them to a level of fatigue, whereas that's the last place we add value to a client in terms of pushing them up. And whether that's online or whether that's face-to-face, -face, even when that's, when that's online, we've still got to lay these out and make sure that everything's in place before we start to think, okay, now we're going to push you to a high level of fatigue, push you close to that point of failure. So it doesn't change whether we're face-to-face -face or online, but understanding, okay, what movement, what joint motion, what exercise are we going to maybe push close to that point? What other movements are we going to pull back? So it's not just across the board, you get three weeks in, everything's going to failure now. <laughs> no, <laughs> you might get three weeks in and say, okay, well, let's play with this bicep curl. Let's play with some elbow flexion movements where the client wants to experience something, they get into it. You know, you're going to push that a little bit further because the ability to maybe tolerate that is higher. But that hack squat, if they're on there, okay, that's still going to be three, four reps in the tank. We're going to hold back on that because you're working on the sensation and the chest press is five reps back. 
because they just haven't got that ability to contract and that internal intent there. So you're holding that there. So it's going to be a different across the board, but you're going to start to think, okay, once I've got these other areas in place, now what point within failure am I going to start to take them to? Because Jimbo touched on earlier, you know, the bodybuilders using a little bit of body English, right? A little bit of cheating. Well, why, right? You know, if I decided the point of failure was their inability to continue though that set when they can't sustain the same exact pretty much ranges of motion and stops and starts and tempo as they started with and the set's done. But that's only one type of failure. And as they get more advanced, okay, maybe now they can allow a little bit of momentum to help them overcome some of those sticking points and then they get more reps out and then that muscle gets a bit more work, but they still keep the connection. That seems to be cool and fine for them. Like these are all just, again, considerations for us to start playing with. Because just because I failed at one tempo doesn't mean I failed at all tempos. Because remember, tempo manipulates the weight that you're dealing with at various points in a lift. So you can actually use that to help you and to keep a set going if you wanted to. So that's just another consideration there. Which probably then, actually, if we're talking about manipulating stuff, leads us quite nicely into the final point, which is... We've called it congruency, but really what we're talking about is profile. One of the reasons, by the way, we called it congruency is because the other three were C's and we needed a fourth C. And profile, like 3CP just sounds wrong. So, <laughs> but profiles, adjusting them, manipulating all the kind of, you know, this is the the fun stuff when you first start getting into biomechanics. I often find you're like, I want to pay exercises with these amazing things and I'm going to do this, that, and the other. And we really like them. They're really exciting and they are fun, but they are last in our list for the most part within this for a good reason. You want to take it off? Yeah, it's, it's making the decision as do we want to try and have a congruent profile? Do we want to try and change the experience so it's heavier where we're stronger and lighter where we're weaker? Or once we get an understanding of what's going on, do we just, no, actually, I'm going to leave this as is and understand that, okay, they're not really going to get challenged in the length and range because fatigue is going to happen in that mid to shorten position that's fine i might then choose another exercise that then is going to challenge in the length and range but understanding the point of failure we're going to relative to the profile and relative then are we going to adjust anything to try and create this congruency or not is the final piece to the puzzle it's the final part we're going to play with and it goes back to we've been saying ability to contract bodybuild for years and years have been jacked without that ability consciously maybe unconsciously it's been there and something they have been aware of but it's not something directly they've sort of th- been thinking about it's no different with profile manipulation or congruency of pr- profile i've been using dumbbell flies dumbbell press bench press to build your chest with some cable flies chucked in there for years and years no awareness of profile but it doesn't mean we can't optimize the experience optimize potentially how long we can stay in the game for optimize maybe how it feels through certain compromised joints compromised positions certain weaker areas if we can start to adjust this profile and adjust stuff it's one of those ones that once you've got all the other things in place if you ever get the chance to play on a machine with a pretty damn nice profile it does feel night and day different (laughs) once everything else is kind of there and that's why it becomes really compelling to those of us who get into this kind of world because you're like oh my god i've never that's amazing that feels so much better than kind of everything else that i've had But one of the reasons it's also last on our list is to some degree, it's the hardest one for you to manipulate as a coach because either your client has kit (laughs) with pretty good profiles or they don't, or you've then got to start manipulating a machine in an in-person setting or an exercise in an in-person setting. And until you've got all the other stuff in place, control, 
uh, of tempo starts and stops and all that kind of shit. I can't adjust the machine when someone's using, let's say, a leg extension until they're owning all those things and reproducing it so that I can fuck around with it and make it harder uh, for them where they're stronger and all that kind of good stuff, which will then completely change the experience and they'll really, really like it. But being able to do that is contingent on all the other stuff being there in the first instance. If they've got pain on a leg extension the whole time, well, me, what do you think me manipulating is going <laughs> to kind of be doing? You can make a small argument on that. So I, I would pull back on that a tiny bit. I think that the key thing, yes, it's last on our list. Yes, it's the last thing we're going to adjust or manipulate or play with or experiment with, but it's almost one of the first prerequisites that I feel we need to understand. Yeah. So we go back to one of the early points we mentioned around range of motion. If you have an understanding of whether this machine press gets heavier in the bottom of it, so we've got a chest press, gets heavier in the bottom of the load, and we've got some awareness of what's going on around the shoulder. I'm not even going to say pain at this point. Mm. But if it gets heavier in the bottom, okay, I definitely might stay away from that that range there. But if it actually, for some reason, has some big drop-off in load, now I'm like, okay, I may work a little bit more range. So yes, we're not going to manipulate it, but our decisions could be governed by our understanding of the profile yeah. early on when we're thinking about the skill requirement. Because if it's getting heavy in a lengthened position where we're potentially getting weaker, there's a higher skill there. So if we're trying to work through a short range on maybe a lying hamstring curl, the skill requirement on that is high, especially when a lot of machines don't drop off appropriately in load for how weak we get in that position. So we still need an understanding in the early days of what's going on, but that doesn't mean we're going to bring it into the client experience and they're going to know anything about we un- the fact that we understand it. What's that bit when we're first learning biomechanics, like me and Jimbo when we're teaching this, start with forces and torques because that's the shit you're dealing with. That's the stuff at play that changes so much of what is going on. And so because we start there, you know, the, then you start, well, what does this all mean? Well, you look at it in exercises and go, okay, well, what is the challenge of this exercise in this position and this exercise in this position and this exercise in this position? And, you know, the first time you start learning this and starting to see these invisible forces at play in exercises, it's kind of this awesome, slightly mind-blowing, slight, like fucking matrix moment when you can, you get really excited by it. And, you know, you get people to go away and in our mentorship, start exploring exercises with different profiles because we want them to make sense of what's going on from a resistance perspective in things. Because really, most of what all that we're doing in the gym is applying resistances, applying forces and talks to your body or to your client's body and going, what does it mean? And But that's an abstract world unless we bring it into the gym setting where people can see it and understand it. But because we start there, there's, I think there's tendency to then think that we think that the profile stuff is the most important thing. And I think it's just a bit of an inevitability because we think you have to start with forces to know what's going on in any particular exercise. Because look, you can do the same joint motion and it'd be a completely different exercise. If you're doing the, the <laughs> I'm always reminded of the pec deck kind of motion, yeah. right? Because back in, I think, body pump and aerobic days, they used to do the pec deck motion type thing, but they'd hold dumbbells in their hands. So really they're doing like, you know, a shoulder pressing bottom position hold that they're just going through horizontal uh, ab and adduction type motion here. And, but that's a pec motion, isn't it? It's like, nope. <laughs> and if you think it is, get a couple of dumbbells and just do it and tell me what you think is working. And if you tell me chest, I will probably laugh or think there's something weird going on. So 
the thing that makes the challenge is the resistance because that's what your anatomy responds to. And so we have to start with forces and torques, which then lends itself to looking at profiles, which makes you think, oh, profiles matter most. And sadly, they, they're they hugely important and we fucking love them. And that's half the fun, certainly in the early days of mechanics. But it does matter later down the line because, again, when you're working with clients, they have the kit in the gym that they have access to. And you're not going to be able to start manipulating cams and start welding things onto the gym just to manipulate the exercise that you've kind of got. You're going to work with what they have. And so it's just then an understanding and appreciation of what does this exercise bring to that person? What might I complement it with with a different type of exercise if necessary? Or giving us the ability to start thinking in exercise terms in a resistance setting and going, right, is this, again, we come back to step one. Is it appropriate for my client? and for their goal and we can't answer that without understanding of profile yeah it's a key thing it goes back that we've we've got to have in the early days a bit of a protocol a bit of a formula a bit of a structure in place to work with we'll follow that through and then as you get into it you can start to go on your obviously on your own direction change stuff a little bit jump straight through to step three whatever it is but we truly believe that if you're early to exercise mechanics and this is new new area of studying to you then having a set structure in place is key because otherwise you start to learn these terms moment arm force angle whatever it may be like how do i actually use this and apply stuff yeah so rather than just giving you information that ends up confusing you and you can't really see how directly to apply to it having a bit of a structure in there in there in place massively help that ability to take it away and then add value to your own training and obviously to your clients training as well exactly that so to recap for you guys the four c's our pt project four c's we've got client first once we've got that the appropriateness for their goal and what they've got available and their ranges of movement and their skill and all the shit we spoke about then we move into well can they control the exercise and the path of motion of the exercise and their body right so can they control the exercise and can, can they control themselves, right? With both of those things, what do we want to move? What don't we want to move? Can they own the stops and the starts and every point in each of those reps so that if we film them, rep one looks like rep 12. And to begin with, that's what we're interested in. As they get more advanced, we might allow a little more variance in those reps. But to begin with, let's just look for reproducibility. Then we move into, can they contract and connect stuff? Can they, okay, now those words of squeezing that might start to kind of matter. Can they restrain stuff? At what point of failure do we want them to go to? Can they explore the repetitions from an internal um, perspective? And using the feedback of that exploration, adjust, start to adjust themselves and find, oh, there, that's the bit in this exercise for me that really connects. And then finally, the congruency of profile stuff and manipulating things and adjusting machines as your client is going through uh, an actual set itself or allowing that little bit of body English or picking exercises with complementary profiles or knowing that that machine there has a way better overall profile than this one here and suits my client better. So given these the choice of these two exercises, I'm going to pick the better one, right? Knowing how to do all that stuff. So hopefully for you guys, that makes sense for the four C's. If anyone is intrigued and wants to learn a little bit more, this is something that obviously we, we talk through within the mentorship program. Currently going through one at the moment. Next intake is mid-Feb, uh, which you can get early bird sign up for ASAP that we will be putting the price up very soon on that. So if you're interested, act now. <laughs> and then we will see you guys next week. If you have you any find questions us on all for us, major platforms, Instagram, including the Apple you know Podcast and Google Play. If you like what we have to say here, then please do leave a rating or review. 
We're only here because of your support, so thank you very much for listening. If you want everyone else to understand how awesome biomechanics is as well, then please do connect them with the PT Project podcast.